you come to the new to element party, uh, the desserts that we serve you, if we have cookies, they're not those crappy Trader Joe cookies. They're like oats and dirt. Okay. Oh, it's called a cookie. That's not called a cookie. That's like called nasty and good for you. We're going to feed you stuff that's not good for you. Unless you like Trader Joe cookies, sorry. Uh, okay, so this morning we're doing this thing. We're handing out popcorn for what we're doing. So if you... Hey, we got hecklers. So if you didn't get popcorn, raise your hand. We're giving you popcorn. If you if you were new last week and you came to first service and you got a piece of paper on your car that said churches are the devil and money is of the devil, it was not from us. Unless you think money is of the devil, then you can actually give it all to us. And we won't mind. Uh, a couple things. Uh, CareNet is a group in town that, that helps... Uh, girls who are pregnant, uh, really young mothers, people who really need uh, some help. And they offer all their services for free. And they even go into schools and do some presentations and stuff like that. They, Their largest fundraiser of the year that they are doing, because they're nonprofit, and again, they don't charge for anything, is October 3rd. And if you guys would like to be involved in part of that, there's some uh, things on the back table in the back of the hallway you can grab and fill out. Uh, they do this thing called a, their Walk for Life. If you go on the women's first Saturday hike, the women that is the same day as the next women's first Saturday hike, and they are actually doing the Walk for Life as their first Saturday hike. So there you go. Get involved. Help them out. They're, they're a great organization. And next week is Super Snack Sunday. Which doesn't mean snacks for you because we're giving you popcorn. It means if you're at the store this week and you see some like kid snack on the shelf, just buy one and bring it with you next week. And then we'll give to the children's ministry and we can keep your kids' mouths full so they quit crying. I'm just kidding. What? No Trader Joe's cookies. No oats and dirt. I, no, seriously, I, I'll tell you. I, I had gone to the store and Oreos now now makes vanilla Oreos. Have you had them? Anybody had the vanilla Oreos yet? Oh, they're stinking amazing. And, and my wife went to Trader Joe's because she likes Trader Joe's for some reason because she likes healthy food. And she, goes, and she comes home and she goes, I bought a thing of cookies. I'm like, cookies? Because I love cookies. I'm like, it's not a cookie. I've just been eating the, you know, the Oreos. And, okay, whatever. All right, I got a lot to get through today, so why don't you stand on these reading of God's Word? All those bags, too. Ecclesiastes 7.29 says this. This only I have found. God made mankind upright, but men have gone in search of many schemes. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we are a people who follow you, who trust the things that you tell us, and we walk as your children in this world so people know who you are, that we don't get caught up in schemes, but that we follow you. Amen. Have a seat. So thanks for having me back. Tell you how this is going to go. Uh, five weeks ago, I told you guys that a lot of people have asked me questions about different movies and questions that these movies pose. And so most of the questions that they asked came down to the whole idea of spiritual warfare. That's why we did the last four weeks on spiritual warfare, angels, demons, all that kind of stuff. Uh, this week and next week, I'm now answering the last two movies that people usually have questions about. Uh, so, I mean, I, I love movies. I think they're a whole lot of fun. But if you are new here this morning, and you may want to come in two weeks also to see what we're really like. 
We're not much different than this, but you won't get popcorn. That's kind of how that works. Uh, like I said, I, I love movies, I love books, but I really hate when people try and put words in Jesus' mouth or the church's mouth, for that matter. Uh, and I think because a lot of Christians don't know history and their history of who they are, they believe a lot of things that are not true that are perpetrated by movies, television, and books. So as I said, we're going to cover a couple of movies in the next two weeks, movies that have confused a lot of people, but there are very good answers to questions that have been posed. Really, there are no new questions that have not been asked, and there are great answers. We're going to have a lot of fun hopefully, unless I really Charlie Brown this, uh, but we'll have a lot of fun. And I do this not to give you ammo to go to some of your nut job conspiracy friends who believe some of this stuff and be like, blast. What it's to, for you is so that you can rest assured of the faith that you have been received, that has been handed to you and handed to you faithfully, and it is good. So you got your popcorn, we're ready for the movies. That's how it goes. Uh, how many of you have read or seen the book or the movie The Da Vinci Code? Okay. How many of you have friends who have seen it or read it? Okay, that's good. We're going to study this because too many people have read the book or seen the movie and they believed it and never checked the facts behind it. Uh, da Vinci Code is a work of fiction, but the author, as well as many other conspiracy people out there, believe that the story may be fiction, but everything in it, all the facts underlying it, are actually true. That's the premise. So we'll start with the movie clip of how the movie actually starts. suspenseful it must be true oh my goodness if you've never seen the movie or read the book I'm going to give you the basic premise right here uh, while in Paris on business there's a guy his name is Robert Langdon he he works at Harvard and he is a symbologist he goes through history and he and he pulls out symbols and religions and societies and tells you what they actually mean so while he is in Paris on business he gets a late night phone call that tells him that the curator the elderly guy of the Louvre Museum has been murdered and that's what you saw in that clip right before he actually gets killed and he's murdered inside the museum near the body there is all this stuff that makes the police think that Robert Langdon is actually the killer but before they can actually arrest him there's a girl who is a French police cryptologist feels like tongue twisters and everything I gotta say uh, she decide she deciphers ciphers because that's what a cryptologist does. Her name is Sophie Nouveau. She turns out to be the granddaughter of the curator of the Louvre Museum. She comes to the aid of, of Robert Langdon because she knows he didn't do it. And so what happens is these two go and they, and they solve a riddle left to them by uh, their, the elderly curator that searches them on a, on a quest for the Holy Grail. And you're like, oh, like Indiana Jones. It's like, no, not so much. Not like Indiana Jones at all. Uh, in the middle of this quest, they come to a house of a guy named Sir Lee Teebling, where Sophie learns the truth about her grandfather and the Holy Grail. She is told that her grandfather was the head of a secret society known as the Priory of Scion. The book actually says that it's an actual secret society whose members include Sir Isaac Newton, Botticelli, Victor Hugo, and Da Vinci, among others. And so they show her details that prove that the church has led a massive smear campaign against the true heir of Jesus' church, Mary Magdalene. That the apostles stole the gospels and the church away from Mary and that Jesus wanted Mary to carry on the church. But the men took it away. 
they show her proof that consists of paintings by Leonardo da Vinci that show that Jesus was actually married to Mary Magdalene. And that the New Testament and the Bible is a collection of books that were meant to destroy Mary's credibility and any credibility women had in the church and make up a male-dominated power base. They continue to tell her that the knights, known as the Knights Templar, were sent during one of the Crusades, and their job was to find the gospel account that Mary actually wrote, and they found this, and then they hid it, and they call this the Holy Grail. It's called a sacred chalice. To make this short, uh, the chalice is, is the womb of Mary Magdalene, where she had Jesus' baby. She had a Jesus baby. And I know some of you guys are at the checkout stand looking at the Weekly World News, and it says, I had Jesus' baby. It's kind of the same deal. That's that. Uh, so the Holy Grail is the bones of Mary and four large chests of documents that show the cover of the church and the true bloodline of Jesus Christ. The true bloodline of Jesus, they say, founded Paris as the Merovingians. And they ruled for hundreds of years until the church decided to wipe them out to keep their secret because that's what the church is like. Uh, Robert Langdon said that all throughout history that the sacred feminine is worshipped and that the modern church destroyed her to achieve its power base and to domineer women. So the Louvre curator of the museum has sacrificed his life to protect the priority's most sacred trust, the location of the Holy Grail. Now, it's, it's in the book, but there's a lot of conspiracy people out there today. You read the Internet a lot. People believe this, and they run with this. And so through this book, you see it's a race that, that goes through London and London and Paris and where Robert Langdon and Sophie Naveau, they match wits with this faceless power broker known as the teacher who appears to work for a group called Opus Dei. And the book says it's a clandestine Vatican-sanctioned Catholic sect believed to have long plotted to seize the Priori's secret. Now, the end, if you read the book, the end of the book's total letdown because he gets to write where all the documents are supposed to be and the book ends. It's like, ha-ha, buy the next book. <laughs> Sucker. You know, if you watch the movie, they actually find some of the documents so the movie ends a little bit different. But a lot of people have bought into this. They read this and don't know how to answer these questions. They think it's actually true. And many Christians who don't know history or the history of their faith have voiced questions. I will do my best to answer those this morning. But the first thing I want to tell you is this. Uh, when Mel Gibson did this movie called The Passion, you know, in, in The Passion, he followed much of the New Testament narrative about how Jesus died. He becomes a center of controversy. They started calling him crazy. And he is a little crazy. If you've ever heard him actually speak out loud, he is a little crazy. But the editor of the New Republic said that the passion was a repulsive, masochistic fantasy and a sacred snuff film. The New York Times said Gibson is courting bigotry in the name of sanctity. And Andy Rooney said that Gibson was a real nutcase whose ulterior motives is making money. Yet when Dan Brown comes out and he writes a book called Da Vinci Code, which characterizes much of the New Testament Gospels as fabrication and the deity of Christ as a fable, he is praised as a brilliant historian. The Library Journal said this, It is a blend of history and page-turning suspense. It is a masterpiece that should be mandatory reading. Publishers Weekly called it an exhaustively researched page-turner about religious societies, ancient cover-ups, and savage vengeance. You know, and so why is the passion vilified and the Da Vinci Code praised? Well, it's not because of facts behind it, because the Da Vinci Code is extremely uh, short on facts. Uh, it's extremely in inaccurate. I'll just show you this clip right here as one of the things that, that are in here. A growing religious turmoil was gripping Rome three centuries earlier. A young Jew, that Jesus had come up, preaching love and signal God. Centuries after this crucifixion, Christ's followers had grown exponentially and had started a religious war against the pagans. Wow! Want to rewrite history? There you go. It, up at the time, like 50 A.D. to 300 A.D., you know what Christians were doing? Getting killed. <laughs> okay. 
we're going to throw them into coliseums. We're going to uh, draw and quarter them and rip them apart. They, they were being persecuted and tried, they tried to wipe them out. They weren't running around trying to start a holy war against the, the pagans because they're so nice and wonderful. All right, so this is kind of the thing that conspiracy people like to run with, and this is kind of what's full in the book. So the, the biggest thing in the book is the whole idea of the priority of Sion. We're going to start with these. I'm going to walk you through these things and show you how the faith... Ooh, we're gonna... Okay. Maybe there is something about this priority of Sion. I hope not. Maybe part of the story ends in bloodshed. They were butchered by the church. It all started over a thousand years ago. The French king conquered the holy city of Jerusalem. This crusade, one of the most massive and sweeping in history, was actually orchestrated by a secret brotherhood, the Priory of Sinai, and their military arm, the Knights Templar. I, I, I just want to go dun 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 every, every time I watch. Okay, maybe not. All right. The, the front cover of the Da Vinci Code it actually says this. It says, fact, the Priory of Sion, a European secret society, was founded in 1099 as a real organization. In 1975, Paris's Bibliothèque Nationale, that's the National Library, discovered parchments known as Les Dossiers Secrets, which means the secret documents, identifying numerous members of the Priory of Sion, including Sir Isaac Newton, Botticelli, Victor Hugo, and Leonardo da Vinci. Now, if you haven't read the book or seen the movie, this seems kind of harmless, even though it's actually completely false. But this is the premise that a lot of conspiracy people run with, especially in this book, that there was you know, the secret marriage between Jesus and Mary Magdalene, and she would have been the head of the church if it wasn't for the males who wanted to run it. See, the priority has existed for ages to keep a watchful eye over the descendants of Jesus and Mary and wait for the right time to reveal that secret to the world. Now, three weeks ago, I told you guys that we, if you call yourself a believer, must be somebody who lives and walks in truth. You cannot be somebody who goes along with every bandwagon that comes along. You have to be somebody who is grounded in truth. We are to be people who know the truth. The truth is this. If you search for the Priory of Sion in like a university library, you probably will not find anything at all. But if you look for it on the Internet, the great place for uh, truth, you, know, uh, you will find a sea of information from like the bizarre to the occult to the new age to esoteric thought to fringe to Weird. Uh, in, in the novel, the Priory of Sion is proven by this cache of documents that were discovered in the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris. I will tell you this. Those documents, they actually exist. Those documents are there. But they were planted there by a guy named Pierre Plantard. Here, this is Pierre. Such a debonair-looking man that he is. Uh, Robert Richardson, he is not a believer, so maybe that gives him a little more credibility. He writes an excellent history about what happened. He said the Priory is actually founded in 1956. Uh, the French government is in turmoil. Pierre wants to get a little bit of power in this government, so he claims that he is from the line of the Merovingians. Uh, he changes his last name from Plantard to St. Clair because that was from the line of the Merovingians. So he and a few followers take and they put some documents into the national libraries where he gets to detail his history back to the Merovingians. One of the guys who helped him do this actually testified to this in court. In 1996, there's a series of French specials, and the BBC did also specials to expose the entire hoax. Pierre Plantard, he was, he's an anti-Semite. He actually aligned himself with the Nazis when they were going into World War II to take over Paris because he thought, oh, I'll get some power. I'll take over that way. Then when the Nazis became defeated, he started a splinter group known as the Priory of Sion. And the most important strand in Dan Brown's book and in most people's conspiracy theories is actually a hoax. Uh, the second thing they like to harp on is this thing called Opus Dei. Uh, here's a clip for you. Some of the talking points in the United Many call it a brainwashing cult. Others, an ultra conservative Christian secret society. 
Obviously, some people fear what they don't understand. Perhaps the last defense attack your enemies. Perhaps continue to be harsh with us. We are not um, cafeteria Catholics. We don't pick and choose which rules to follow. We follow doctrine rigorously. Does doctrine necessarily include vows of chastity, tithing, and atonement for sins through self flagellation in the cities? Many of our followers are married, many of them have families. Only a small proportion choose to live ascetic lives. That will be all, Michael. Thank you. Now, if you're a big fan of, like, Spider-Man, that was Dr. Octopus from Spider-Man, too. Okay. I like Spider-Man, so, you know, it kind of stands out to me. So, you see, Opus Dei is this, this, you know, a sect that hides within Catholicism, you know, and then they have this albino monk that they shot at the very beginning that, that killed the, you know, curator of the Louvre Museum because apparently albino monks are, are evil as well. Uh, talking about Opus Dei, uh, in, in the book, Dan Brown says, A bizarre but true fact is that Opus Dei exists and has recently completed construction of a 47,133,000 square foot American headquarters at 243 Lexington Avenue in New York City. Now, why that's considered bizarre is bizarre, because it's not really that bizarre. Opus Dei, it is not a religious order. It consists mostly of lay people, people just like you. Only 2% of the people in Opus Dei are actually priests. And Opus Dei contains no monks whatsoever. So the other thing to try and vilify in the movie as religious order is also false. Now we get to history, and I love history. So here's a clip about Constantine. <laughs> the Bible, as we know, was finally presided over by one man, the pagan emperor Constantine. I thought Constantine was a Christian. Oh, I know he was a lifelong pagan who was baptized on his deathbed. Constantine may have been a uh, lifelong pagan, but he was also a pagan. And in 325 Anno Domini, he decided to unify Rome under a single religion, Christianity, and to strengthen this new Christian tradition. Constantine held a famous ecumenical gathering known as the Council of Nicaea. And at this council, the many sects of Christianity debated and uh, voted on uh, everything from the acceptance and rejection of specific Gospels to the date for Easter to the ministry of the sacrament and of course, the immortality of Jesus. I don't follow. Until that moment in history, Jesus was viewed by many of his followers as a mighty prophet, a great powerful man, but a man and a man, immortal. Not the son of God? Not even his nephew, Trashman. Again, this is actually false history. Uh, a lot of conspiracies like to run with this stuff. Uh, Constantine was the first Christian emperor of Rome. He was the one who stopped the persecution of Christians. Constantine was not always the greatest guy, but he really was a convert, and he made efforts to repay the church for losses that had been done to it by the persecution of the Roman government. Uh, da Vinci Code makes a very strong push to try and falsely portray who he was. It claims that Constantine put the Bible together his way. It claims that he used Christianity for political gain, that he moved Christian worship from Saturday to Sunday to coincide with the pagan sun god, and they decided Jesus should be made into a god to suit his purposes. Now, Constantine did a whole lot of things. But none of those. None of those things at all. Actually, on page 234, it says, Constantine commissioned and financed a new Bible, which omitted the Gospels that spoke of Christ's human traits and embellished the Gospels that made him godlike. 
uh, that's actually completely false. The, the canon of Scripture, which call your Bible, we call it the canon of Scripture, uh, that was actually already in place nearly 200 years before Constantine ever came upon the scene. By Constantine's time, the early church had rejected these things called Gnostic Gospels, which I'll explain in just a minute. And these, all these Gnostic Gospels that they are talking about, they were written at least 120 years after the resurrection of Christ. At least 120 years, most of them two and three centuries later. But Dan Brown in the book and many conspiracy people claim that Christians literally stole Jesus and shrouded his human message in an impenetrable cloak of divinity, using it to expand their own power. Now, what they use to do this is they call it, claim Gnostic Gospels. I'll explain to you best I can what Gnostics are because there's a lot of different sects on them, but essentially it comes down to this. Uh, the Gnostics were, were a group that... Uh, they're very cult-like. They had secret knowledge that you had to get farther and farther into them in order to find out what they really believed, like a lot of cults today, actually, as well. And what they believed was that knowledge was everything and that the flesh was evil. And so you could do anything you wanted to your body. It didn't really matter because the flesh was evil, but your knowledge was, was everything. They believed that, that God is like ultimate knowledge. And so it'd be like the sun. You know, God is like the sun. And then you have these rays that come off the sun that reflect off this and reflect off that and reflect off that. And one of these reflections off that God became Jesus. And he became flesh. And they believed that by becoming flesh, he did something evil because flesh was evil. So in most of the Gnostic Gospels, you get a bunch of saints. You don't really see a human Jesus. What you see is a whole bunch... As a matter of fact, in, in the Gospel of Thomas, it says that in order for God to save w women, He will turn them into men. And if you're a dude, that's not good. Okay? We, oh, maybe. Okay, whatever. But, but I'm telling you, it's not good. W women, women are good. But, but this, these are the kind of things that are in the Gnostic Gospels. They, in, in conspiracy theories, they will say, oh, well, the Gnostic Gospels, they, they have a far more human Jesus than the divine one that's shown in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Again, sounds fine unless you actually read Gnostic Gospels and compare them to the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In the Gnostic Gospels, Jesus is rarely recognized as a Jewish carpenter, a teacher, a prophet that dwelt in first century Palestine. He is often described as a phantom-like creature. And he goes around and he lectures about the deficiency of the eons and the mother and the arrogant one and the archons. You're like, oh, yeah. No. These are all terms that only the Gnostic elite would understand, hence their Gnostic character in the Gospels. And what they would do is they would write this and they would take, okay, what, what apostle do we not have a name on, on a Gospel account? This, oh, Philip. We'll put Philip on one. Yeah, the Gospel of Philip. If they're lying about their authorship, they're probably not a good person to read to begin with. Again, and these things are written 120, 200, 300, 400 years after the resurrection of Christ. Uh, you know, in reality, the Gnostic Gospels aren't Gospels at all, in the sense that the canonical Gospels are in your Bible, which are filled with narrative, concrete details, historical figures, political activity, and details about social and religious life. Uh, they say that Constantine shifted worship to Sunday from Saturday to coincide with the pagans' veneration of the sun. That's also false. The earliest Christians worshipped on Sunday because it was the day Jesus rose from the dead. They would call this the Lord's Day. You see this in Acts chapter 20 verse 7, 1 Corinthians 16, 2, Revelation 1, 10. The earliest church fathers attested the fact that the church always worshipped on Sunday. Dan Brown writes that Constantine was a lifelong pagan who was baptized on his deathbed. The movie doesn't say this next part, but it actually says too weak to protest in the book. And that is false. 
Constantine, he is a flawed guy, many, many, many issues. Uh, but he really did convert and left paganism. He really did become a genuine Christian convert. Again, he repaid the churches for its losses during the 300 years of persecution. He favored clergy. He did convene the Council of Nicaea, but there were different little issues in the church. And so what he wanted to do is he brought, he paid for the clergy to come to the Council of Nicaea so they could all get together because he wanted the church unified. He wanted them with one voice speaking the gospel of Christ to the world. He wanted them unified. That's what he did. Um, he actually favored baptism near his death. What happened at this time is there's, there is this false idea that baptism removed your sins. And so what a lot of people would do is they would wait till the moment before you died. They're like, baptize me. See if you get all your sins washed away at the end. This is one of the reasons why the Council of Nicaea needed to be convened because people were crazy. Because okay? we needed to talk about the truth. Again, the first general council of the church was the council of Nicaea. They got together and they discussed issues of church life and a little bit of doctrine. And But Brown says that the council, before the council, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a moral prophet, a great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless. That's completely false. Uh, the, there's plenty of evidence that you will see that from the very beginning, earliest Christians, dating back to the time of Jesus on the earth, believed that Jesus was divine. That Jesus was God. J.N.D. Kelly writes this. says that the all but universal Christian conviction in the centuries prior to the Council of Nicaea had been that Jesus Christ was divine as well as human. We, in theological circles, you call this the hypostatic union. This is Jesus is fully God. He's fully man. The most primitive confession had been Jesus is Lord. This is in Romans 10.9, Philippians 2.11. And its import had been elaborated and deepened in the apostolic age. The Council of Nicaea did not get together and define that Jesus was God. That was already accepted because that's what Jesus actually said. But what it did, it started to address the issues of, that, of the exact relationship between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Are they equal? Are they one substance? Are they co-eternal? You know, what does that look like? And the council got together, and one of the many things they discussed was the specifically addressed this uh, heresy known as Arianism. Arianism teaches that the sun was a lesser god created at some point you know, in history, and God made this lesser god at some point, even though the Old Testament scriptures will tell you over and over that there is no other god besides God. Okay, but just at some point, this is actually what the Jehovah's Witnesses teach today, that Jesus is a lesser God created at some point in history. So this council gets together, and one of the things that they do is they reject this doctrine of Arianism. And if you read the book, and a lot of conspiracy sources will say, oh, it was a relatively close vote. You know what the vote was condemning this heresy? 300 to 2. Arius and his disciple. 300. That's not a close vote at all. And actually, do you guys know where Jesus was killed? Why the Jews wanted him dead? Blasphemy. Claiming to be God. It's very, very simple. Okay. Um, here's next. This is about Jesus being married. Hello. What about that figure on the right hand of our Lord, seated in the place of honor? Flowing red hair. Folded open hands. Who is she? I don't know that's bad about The prostitute? She was no such thing. Smeared by the church in 591 and a domino called death. And imagine it was Jesus' wife. <gasps> really? I'm sorry. I just laugh sometimes. I watch the play. Uh, in truth, Jesus never married uh, anybody. Uh, there is actually not one hint of historical evidence that Jesus was actually married. Uh, you might even sometimes 
try and find some of this in like some of the later Gnostic Gospels that get really weird, but you don't. Uh, but really not to be confused with facts, the Da Vinci Code's idea says, well, Jewish men were meant to be married and rabbis had to get married. And this plays a big role in the book, obviously, because Jesus has a secret bloodline. Uh, ex exceptions for rabbis were always given in terms of celibacy. There's even a whole subclass of Jews known as the Essenes who were all celibate. Uh, there are Jewish prophets like Jeremiah and John the Baptist who were celibate. And yet Jesus is always connected to these guys. But you hear over and over again by books like this and conspiracy theories that Jesus and Mary had a child and she fled to France and they had a, this daughter's name was Sarah who gave birth to the Merovingians who founded Paris. And blah, 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 blah. Seriously, like that was the point that Jesus came, died, and rose from the dead to found Paris. Like, we're going to make you nasty food and give you some fries. You know, that's, was that the point of Jesus? No, that's not the point. And seriously, anybody who's schooled in history knows that Paris was not founded by the Merovingians. Paris was a Gaelic village that was turned into a city by the Romans. It's like, God, get your facts straight. None of these versions of Christ's life come about in any documents before the ninth century. You know, but Brown says, well, I have evidence. You know, I, I got to look at this stuff. And, and there's a third century document known as the Gospel of Philip, where Jesus supposedly kisses Mary, his companion. And Brown says, oh, the word companion means spouse in Aramaic. The problem with that is the Gospel of Philip is written in Greek. It's not written in Aramaic. All right. It's, it's like this. Uh, I'll, I'll get to that in a second. John, I'll get to that in a second. Um, it, it's like this. If, if we sing songs in English, we say God or the Lord. And you would take these songs down to Mexico and they translate them into Spanish. Sometimes they will translate God or the Lord as El Señor. Okay? And, so and so they sing songs of the worship of God. Now, if you would take that and bring it back into English, you would say, oh, the man. Oh, the man. The man. Oh, the man. You know, however that would go. And, and you'd be like, they're worshiping a man. No, they're not worshiping a man. But it's a different language and has different connotations. It's written in Greek, not in Aramaic. That means, it means companion. It does not mean spouse. It's, it's crazy how these things go. This is the actual quote out of the Gospel of Philip. Now you can put it up. There you go. And the companion of the Savior is Mary Magdalene. Christ loved her more than all the other disciples and used to kiss her often on her mouth. Again, this is a third century document. So, but can't think Western culture either because of what happens next. The rest of the disciples were offended about it and expressed disapproval. They said to him, why do you love her more than all of us? Aren't you going to kiss us too, Jesus? You know, it'd, be, it'd be like the creepy gospel, you know? Just, Oh my goodness. Now, just say for sake of argument that, you know, this was an eyewitness account of what happened. The proof that they were married would break down in the sheer fact that they were mad about it. The disciples, why do you, if he's his wife, why would they be mad if he kissed her? Oh, yes, see? But again, the gospel wasn't written until the 3rd century, 200 years removed from Jesus, and the accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Scholars dismiss the gospel of Philip as having no value whatsoever, but if you've got a conspiracy, you've got to hold on to something, you know, because I've got a conspiracy. Brown also tries to cite uh, the gospel of Mary Magdalene, which is also written too late for credibility, and it never says that Jesus and Mary were married. And yet Dan Brown in the book says, I shan't bore you with the countless references to Jesus and the Magdalene's union. Well, you can count them, too. And none of them actually say that they were married. And why is there no evidence? You know, Vinci Cody would claim conspiracy, but really there's no evidence because it didn't happen. We don't have any evidence that Jesus was married, but we have plenty that he was not. If you have your Bible, open to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5, Paul is writing this thing. Now, Paul's writings are, are the earliest writings that we have. 
Uh, actually, in 1 Corinthians 15, there, there's a little hymn that Paul writes, and that comes from the third to fifth century, or third to fifth year after the resurrection of Christ. Very early, very early writings in what Paul does, and so we believe that Paul is therefore the most credible. And so, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5, Paul defends his right to have a wife. 1 Corinthians 9, 5, Paul says, Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? That's Peter. Now, do you see what the thing is there with that? If Jesus had been married, don't you think Paul would have said, like, Jesus? He'd be like, ha, I don't got to quote anybody else. Jesus did it. I can do it too. Go walk on water. You know, you know he, he could have said that, but he doesn't because Jesus wasn't married. Now, why did Jesus never get married? I think there's a good reason why. I think it's the same reason Jesus never wrote anything down. Because as we have something that Jesus wrote down, we'd be like, oh, look it, let's worship this thing. We'd make it into some sort of an artifact and everybody take a, a trip to Mecca to read the thing that Jesus wrote and, and the whole point would be lost. Same reason Jesus never got married, never had children. I mean, would, it, would they be a quarter God? Would they be half God? You know, what, what would it be like? And, and we would just all of a sudden venerate and worship this bloodline that came through Jesus. And the point is that we should worship Jesus, not anything else. I think there's very good reason why he never got married, and there's very good reason why he never wrote anything down. Because we are crazy. We are. And he knows that. Okay, this is the whole thing about the Knights of Templar. But the Templars were created to protect the Holy Land. How's it come? The hide of true will. Supposedly the invasion was defined an artifact, lost since the time of Christ. An artifact it was said. The church would kill to possess. Did they find it, this buried treasure? Put it this way. One day the Templars simply stopped searching. They quit the Holy Land and traveled directly into Rome. Whether they blackmailed the papacy or the church bought their silence fell announced, but it is a fact. The papacy declared these priory knights, these knights Templar, of limitless power. By the 1300s, the Templars had grown too powerful, too threatening. So the Vatican issued secret orders to be opened simultaneously all across Europe. The Pope had declared the Knights Templar Satan worshippers, said God had charged him with cleansing the earth of these heretics. The plan went off like clockwork. The Templars were all but exterminated. The Pope sent troops to claim the Priory's treasure, but they found nothing. The few surviving knights of the Priory had vanished, and the search for their sacred artifact began again. What artifact? I've never heard about any of this. Yes, you have. Almost everyone on Earth has. You just know it as the Holy Grail. I swear, when I preach, I need, like, music behind me. Bum. I'd be, like, so much more effective that way. Uh, okay, so in the book, in the Vinci Code, uh, the, they say the Priory of Sion created these, uh, this, this group of knights uh, to protect the bones, go find them, stuff like that. The Templars, they, they came into being uh, during their crusades to protect travelers to and from the Holy Land. Uh, the knights were founded in 1118 AD. They should have become obsolete when the last crusader fortress fell in Acre in 1291, but by then they were so good at their job that they had amassed great wealth and they metamorphosed them size into a medieval banking institution. Uh, they, and, and a travel agency kind of like, you know, because they would take people there and back and there and back and they did their job very well. Oh, you want to go to the hotel? Let's go. And, and they would take you and get you back. And you're going to pay the guys that are going to actually get you there and not get, get you killed on the way. 
But in Brown's rewrite of history, what happens is that the Templars were supposedly suppressed by the Pope. Uh, this would actually be Pope Clement V, uh, because they were blackmailing him with the secret of the Holy Grail. And rather than submit to blackmail, the Pope devised an ingeniously planned sting operation, arrested the Templars, and burned them at the stakes as heretics. Uh, this is actually not what happened. Uh, at, at the time, the main place for the Templars' power w was in France. And in France, King Philip IV, who you call King Philip the Fair, uh, if you ever Google him on the internet, it's kind of funny because he's not very fair. But uh, anyway, King Philip the Fair of France, he wanted the Templars' wealth and power because they were in France. And so he forced the Pope, Clement V, who was a weak Pope, to suppress their order. And so the Pope does write these orders, and then it was the French king and not the Pope who arrested them and burned them. That is the truth of history. Uh, lastly, there's a big thing about you know the, the Last Supper picture, and that's what we're going to talk about because everybody has questions about this. Uh, Brown says that Leonardo da Vinci is like a prankster and a genius who is widely believed to have hidden secret messages within much of his artwork. Uh, if you read art historians, and nobody agrees with that sentiment. I don't know who he got that from, but you know, there you go. Uh, so this is the biggest deal in the movie. This is the clip about the Last Supper. Just to recognize the last son, the great fresco by Leonardo da Vinci. And Mademoiselle, where is Jesus sitting? In the middle. Good. He and his disciples are breaking bread. And what drink? Wine. He drank wine. Good. Fine question. How many wine glasses are on the table? One. The Holy Grail? Open your eyes. Have a look at No chance. Well, that's a bit strange, isn't it? Considering both the Bible and standard revelation celebrate this moment as the definitive arrival of the Holy Grail. This is the original icon for male. I should imagine a female symbol. This is exactly opposite. This is called the chalice. And the chalice resembles a cup. Vessel, or more importantly, the shape of a woman's womb. And in this case, a woman who carried a secret so powerful that if revealed, it would devastate the very foundations of Christianity. Now then, what about that figure on the right hand of our Lord, seated in the place of honor? Flowing red hair, folded, folded hands. Who is she? I do know that's Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene was Jesus' wife. Notice how Jesus and Mary are clothed. Mirror images of each other. Oh my goodness, could this be true? Dun dun. I love it how he goes, the Bible's definitive moment? It's like, seriously, that's not in the Bible. It's like a lot of people when they don't read the Bible, quote the Bible, because they just sound crazy. This is a picture of the Last Supper. This is pre-restoration. Um, and so they would say, you know, the, the Last Supper depicts Mary Magdalene at the right-hand side of Jesus. The great secret for all who had eyes to see. The Last Supper practically shouts at the viewer that Jesus and the Magdalene wore a pair. Now, does anybody know who's actually sitting at the right hand of Jesus right there? John, the Apostle John, okay? That, that's John. Now, admittedly, he does look very feminine, right? You can say it. It's okay. You know. Yes, he does look very feminine, and 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 that's okay. Uh, most 
Renaissance painters, what they did when they wanted to picture somebody as a young man who had not come into their manhood, they'd be without a beard and they would look very feminine because they had not entered their manhood. Leonardo da Vinci paints a uh, painting of John the Baptist before he starts his ministry. This is a picture of him. See? Very, it's like new lead singer Winger right there. You know? <laughs> he paints a picture of Jesus before he starts his ministry. Very feminine looking. Uh, here's here's some actually some pictures from different Renaissance painters of John the Baptist and Jesus. That's Jesus and that's John in his lap. Looks like a girl, right? No beard, very feminine because he had not entered his manhood. Here's another one. What's going on, guys? You know, that's <laughs> okay. Here's another one. These these are all pictures of the Apostle John from Renaissance painters. Because this is how you define a man who had not entered his manhood. No beard, very feminine. That's how they looked. Now, this is uh, the Da Vinci Code post-restoration, after, the, after they finished it all up. If Jesus would have had Mary Magdalene in mind in this picture, I mean, if, if Da Vinci had Mary Magdalene in this picture in mind, there would be 14 people at the table and not 13. You know, it's like, oh, but look at, he's like doing this thing. Oh. What Leonardo da Vinci painted this picture to represent was Jesus has just told everybody he is going to be betrayed. And so look at John. John's sad. He's like, ah. Oh. If you look over at Peter, Peter's got his hand like this. He's got a knife in his hand. What does Peter do? Chops off somebody's ear when they come to arrest Jesus. This is everybody's reaction to like, what? What's going You're Betrayed? Say it isn't so. This is the reaction of the painting. Now, they say, you know, there's no single cup on the table. Actually, there's 13 cups on the table. 13 cups. All right? It's, you know, the people take and go, oh, yeah, there must not be cups. 13 cups on the table. No single cup. Right, because everybody has one. Because it would be just nasty to drink everybody else's cup. I, I got backwash issues. You know, don't double dip in the, in the salsa. What are you guys doing at your supper? It's, it's crazy. You know, the whole idea that this picture is the definitive moment of the Holy Grail is just crazy. Again, Leonardo da Vinci painted this painting in the 1500s. Again, why in the world would you take his view about the Last Supper anyway? He painted in the 50s like he was there. At, see? It's just, it's crazy. But you hear this over and over again by people that, oh, well, look at the scriptures and the Bible has evolved through countless translations, editions, and revisions. History has never had a definitive version of the book. You know, and to say stuff like this, it implies that the Bible has somehow evolved a progression of change as in terms of evolution. That is totally misleading. You know, the, the only change to the Bible that's taken place across centuries at all is an ever more faithful rendering to the translations of the original Hebrew and the original Greek of the Old New Testament. We have 25,000 uh, manuscript, uh, manuscripts of the New Testament itself. And we take these, and, and uh, people who translate Scripture today will go back to the earliest copies we have to make sure what you have in your hand is the most faithful. It has not been changed to do a male-dominated power base. It has been given to you so that you can know what you have in your hands is right and it is true without any additions to the text. You know, according to the Da Vinci Code, Christianity is built on a lie. Pagan polytheism is structured on the truth. Throughout this book and by a lot of conspiracy people, you know, devoted Christians are always seen as, you know, fanatics that no one would ever want to be, especially me. I wouldn't want to be one of those guys. While people who disbelieve and hold to pagan beliefs are always seen as those who are more intelligent and researched. At one point, I got so frustrated, I just want to, like, toss the book and throw something at my TV when I watch the movie. But everybody has a bias. Everybody. You, as people, can trust 
the scriptures that have been handed to you, the faith that has been handed to you, because it is true. Now, I don't know if you've seen it or had any questions, but is there any other questions I did not answer in this for you? Okay. Uh, next, we're going to cover a movie called Religulous. Uh, and there's some stuff in there that also kind of coincides with a movie called Zeitgeist. But there's more questions, and I'll, and I'll answer those next week as, as well. And guys, look, I know that debunking the Da Vinci Code doesn't prove that Christianity is true. But there is a movement underway today to reconstruct Christ as anything but he revealed himself to be. As anything but that. And people are trying to reinvent Christianity, reject the canon of Scripture. And you must be informed enough, not only to know that what you believe is truth, but that you can also help somebody else who has questions as well. In Acts chapter 17, Paul goes to these people, they're called the Bereans, and he gives them the scriptures and who Jesus is, and he, and he preaches them the gospel, and they don't just take his word for it. They actually go and they read the scriptures, and they check on what Paul said before they believe, and they do come to believe. But that is the thing. You and I are to be a people of the truth, a people who don't just take my word for it, or the Da Vinci Code's word for it. You actually check it out, and you know the truth, because we are to be a people of the truth. The reason Jesus Christ came, okay, is that in the world there is a sin problem. We sin against other people. People sin against us. We, we sin against God. Relationships between people are destroyed. Relationships between people and God are destroyed. And Jesus came to fix the sin problem, not to found Paris, okay, to fix the sin problem. You and I need Jesus because we are lost in sin and we need to be reconciled and made whole into who he calls us to be. That is why Jesus came and that is why Jesus died and that is why Jesus rose from the dead and handed you the ability to have a relationship with God and other people again because he is good. Not because we're so good, because we're crazy. We run after stuff like this all the time. Oh, could that be true? And we run off after it. He knows we're crazy and nuts. But yet he loves us anyway and hands us a truth that we can be a whole and redeemed people. That's what he calls us to. That is why every week I bring you guys to communion. Because communion, there's not some holy grail up front. Like, oh, you know, a sacred chalice. I'm going to dip in it. And we bring you to communion because communion reminds us what Jesus Christ did in history to save you and I. The links he went through so that you and I can be restored to relationship with each other and with God. And so you take that cracker and you break it, which represents his body, which was shed for us. You dip it in the wine and the grape juice. It reminds us of his blood that was shed for us so we can be a people who live and walk in the truth. Now, the band's going to come up and do some songs. And as they do, I, I invite you, you know, come and take communion. Pray where you're at. Spend some time getting to know the truth of who God is and that the faith that's been handed to you is trustworthy and it is good. We're going to worship God through giving. There's offering boxes in the sidewall in the very back of the room. And we give simply because God gave so much to us. And part of our worship is giving back to Him. We're going to worship God through fellowship. You guys are invited to hang out and, I guess, eat the watermelon in the back or some more popcorn. You know, I'm like, my throat's all coated between services. I'm like eating all the popcorn going, yeah. No, I've been digging it out of my teeth. Like, every time I movie clip, I'm like trying to get it out because it's driving me nuts. Hoping I don't look like a crazy person. <laughs> And you guys are invited to hang out, get to know each other, to, to, to help each other pursue this faith that you have been given. And lastly, we will also worship God through prayer. There will be some deacons and elders in the back. If you need prayer, if you've never met Jesus Christ before and you want to know who he is, they would love to pray with you. If you have issues going on in your life, they would also love to pray with you about those. Uh, we are to be a people who speak and have communication with God. We call this prayer. Uh, we worship God through these myriad of ways. And he calls you to be a person who worships and trusts what he has handed to you 
as good and true faith. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I do ask that we as a people would understand more and more the truth that you have given to us. That we could be a people uh, who honor you and who love you and live as your children. That when these things come up that maybe sometimes we don't have the answer to, that we can trust that there is an answer. That as we, as we search and, and, and run after maybe something that somebody said that we don't understand, that we would always come back to you. Because you are the truth. You're the way. You're the life. You are the answer. And I ask that we, as your children, would be those who rest and trust in our Father's arms. And we would live and walk for you. And God, that, that people would be drawn to who you are by our lives. Not so much our arguments of disproving the Da Vinci Code or crazy conspiracy theories, but because we live in such a way that the world knows what your children live and look like. That they know you must be real and redeem people's lives because of how you have redeemed our lives. Have us be your kids who walk in your truth. And that we could learn to be still and not run after all this crazy stuff, but trust that you are God and that you are good. Amen.